Hello and welcome to the Greenhouse Church Podcast. My name is Benj Gould and I'm the lead pastor. We are all about creating an environment where anyone can follow the way of Jesus. So we hope that this teaching helps you on your way. Good morning. How are you all? Can you hear me? Good. A few waves comes up. That's great. All right. Let me just say straight up how bummed I am about having to do this via Zoom because when Benj asked me to come and speak, I was actually kind of excited about it. I've heard lots of great things about this church and I really like Benj. And I thought, I'm going to see if all these rumours are true and you really are like the awesome church that you've all been made out to be. I don't doubt it, but I just needed some confirmation, of course. And I thought, I can bring my wife, we can go to some nice cafe in Long Jetty, look at the weather, it's gorgeous today as it turns out. Like I had this whole kind of fantasy about my morning at, at uh, Greenhouse and now I am in my spare bedroom Plus, I got problems with the internet, so I had to do this via my phone. So, like, you know, this gorgeous trip to Long Jenny has turned into me, like, crouched over my phone. Like, um, yeah, so not exactly what I had imagined, but nonetheless, I hope one day I get to get up there and uh, actually meet you guys in person. So I've been asked to speak about evangelism, which is something that I do quite a lot, so I'm cool about doing it, and... I think Ben just pretty much already stated this. I'm pretty sure he probably mentioned it last week, but I'm just going to reiterate it so that it's kind of clear, at least you clear in your mind what I think evangelism is, uh, because there's lots of misconceptions about it. Some people think evangelism is just living a good life or it's about inviting people to church or something like that. And I mean, it can involve those things, but the word evangelism from the original Greek, and don't worry, I'm not going to get all super spiro on the Greek stuff, but from the original Greek, the word actually refers to the spoken aspect of, of mission. So the mission of the church, the mission of your church is to alert people to the reign of God, to let people in Long Jetty know that Jesus reigns, that he rules, that he is king, uh, that his world as he intends it to be, as he intended to be from the beginning, is unfurling throughout history and coming to its ultimate consummation. Our job is to alert people to what that's like, to let people know that Jesus is king and that his kingdom has come. And we can do that by our actions, of course. We can do that by showing people here. Here's what the kingdom looks like. And uh, we've had a few little snapshots of it just in some of those stories we've shared before. But our commitment to, to justice and to peacemaking and to acts of generosity and kindness and all of those things aren't just because we're good people. It's because we're saying, hey, here's what the kingdom looks like. It looks like justice. It looks like peace. It looks like hospitality and generosity and love and 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 caring and kindness. Uh, this is the world that Jesus intended here. Here's a little little taste of it. That's the mission of the church. But at some point, all those actions have to get explained. How can somebody figure out from our decision to like buy, buy coffees for people, or our decision to care for people, or feed people, or all the generous donations you've given that Ben was talking about before? How do people kind of know? Oh, they do that because they believe. That Jesus is king, at some point, like words have to explain that. So evangelism, I, I, I restrict it to its very limited definition. It's the spoken aspect of the mission of God's people. And it's, for many people, the most scary part 
of the mission of God's people. We're pretty good about like acts of generosity or kindness, but we get a little bit scared about the whole idea of what it means to actually kind of speak about what we believe uh, or even invite people to, to themselves recognise the kingship of Jesus and bend their knee before him and swear allegiance to him as their, their king. So I don't know if I'm going to dispel any of your anxieties, but I am going to let you know that often the way we've thought about evangelism uh, is not really the way that I often find it being presented in the scriptures. So let me just say from the outset, as best I can reconstruct this, because the Apostle Paul doesn't make this really explicit in two or three verses somewhere, it seems to be his operating assumption that when it comes to evangelism, Paul seems to be assuming that we will all fall into one of two categories of evangelist. On the one hand, there's the category of, and I'm going to call it the gifted evangelist. There are those who are anointed and called and supernaturally and, uh, gifted by the Holy Spirit to proclaim and to share the gospel. And when you hear Paul talk about that category, it seems as though he thinks People in that category could be translocal, travelling around all sorts of different places and preaching the gospel, as he himself was. He speaks about himself in this particular category, as well as the apostolic band who are part of, of his ministry. So this kind of translocal, moving around, sharing the gospel, helping to seed churches, that, that is the work of these gifted evangelists in category number one. But it seems as though he also assumes that there will be people who will be gifted evangelists who are who are local and who stay put in their contexts. So they could be like, the, you know, the person who just happens to be great at like sharing the gospel when they pick their kids up at school and they get into a conversation with the other parents at the school gate or someone who's just really good at sitting at the lunchroom at work and one thing leads to another and next thing you know they're sharing about the gospel with somebody. They're, these are the ones who are supernaturally anointed or gifted as evangelists. There's another sort of person that falls into this category, and that is kind of pastors and elders, because Paul actually tells Timothy, who's a local church leader, to do the work of the evangelist. And it would seem as though um, the assumption for Paul was there's translocal preaching evangelists, there are local gifted evangelists, and pastors and leaders will be doing the work of evangelism as well, proclaiming the gospel. Now, you're a relatively new church. You've been planted by your current pastor. So actually the chances are your pastor must have had a pretty evangelistic heart to even want to plant this church in the first place. So I think it's fair to assume that Benj is probably a bit of a, of a, bit of a Timothy in this respect too, and maybe some of your other elders as well. But these are the gifted evangelists. These are the ones who are just like a anointed. And of course, we think about famous people in this category, like, you know, Billy Graham and people like that. And often when we think about evangelism, it's like, oh, that's an evangelist. That's how you do evangelism. It's bold. It's proclamatory. It's uh, it's never say die. It's like, it's, it's, it's big. And it's like interesting and exciting, but I couldn't do something like that. But as I said, I find scripture an operating assumption of Paul is that there are two categories when it comes to evangelism. There are those people, and as I said, he puts himself in that category. But then in the second category, there's kind of everyone else. And it's not as though he's suggesting that you're all off the hook, we'll just let all those gifted evangelists do that. He assumes that everyone else in category number two 
we will still do evangelism, but the way we do it and what kind of sparks or catalyzes us doing it will be different. We'll be motivated differently and we'll do it slightly differently. The end result is both categories actually do evangelism, but they just are doing it in two different kind of gears, if I could put it that way. Now, I'm going to leave those gifted evangelists to one side for a second and particularly focus on the rest of us, who I assume most of us fall into this category. We're not the gifted evangelists. We're just meant to be evangelistic, everyday Christians. And by way of coming across this and looking at these two categories, I'm going to get us to have a look at a passage of Scripture from Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 is Paul wrapping up his letter to the Colossians, and he calls them into prayer at this point. But actually, when he tells them what he wants them to pray for, he kind of betrays this assumption about the two categories that I was just talking about. So Colossians chapter 4, I'm going to start reading from verse 2. Here's Paul asking them to pray, and listen to what he says. Devote yourselves to prayer, be watchful and thankful, and pray for us too. Paul is talking about the apostolic band. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of season, full of grace, sorry, seasoned with salt, so that everyone may know how to, so you may know how to answer everyone. Now, can you hear how there are kind of two categories he's referring to there? On the one hand, he says, pray for us in category one. Pray for the evangelists. And he asked very specifically for two things that you should pray for these people. One is boldness. That is, pray that they would be the kind of people who can seize the opportunities to share the gospel. That when a door opens, he actually uses that language, when a door opens, they kind of can get their, their elbow in or their shoulder in and open that door further. They can kind of seize that moment. They can make things happen. So to pray that we would be bold in us doing this, that we won't kind of be shy, that when I get and like even a snippet of a chance to preach at the Areopagus, even though it's super intimidating and they're all really super smart kind of philosophers and we're more used to engaging in evangelism with ordinary type people, pray I would be bold in seizing that opportunity. Pray I'd be bold if I get invited to speak at the, the synagogue or before a king or a, or, or, or a ruler of some kind. Just pray for bold that I won't take a backward step and I'll really seize the moment. And then the second thing he asked them to pray for is clarity. So when I get the opportunities, I please pray that I do the right thing. I say the gospel as clearly as I possibly can in that circumstance. So if there are gifted evangelists in your congregation, if your pastor is a gifted evangelist or your other elders are gifted evangelists, you should be praying these two things, boldness, for them to seize the opportunities and clarity in the way they communicate. Now, if Paul wanted us all to behave like gifted evangelists, of course, the next verse, verse 5, would be where Paul says, and while you're at it, while you're praying for the gifted evangelists for boldness and clarity, you should pray that for yourselves as well. You should pray you'd be bold. You'd be clear in your, your gospel presentation. But actually, 
He doesn't. Interestingly, what he says at this particular point is to change gears and listen to what he says when it comes to, if you like, the everyday evangelist. Speaking to the Colossians, he says this, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, make the most of every opportunity, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. Paul assumes in category one, evangelists make the opportunities. They kind of push the door open. They're bold and clear communicators of the gospel. In category number two, you know when you get to share the gospel? When people ask you what it is that you believe because you've been committed not so much to the boldness and clarity of category one, but you've been committed to wise socialising and delicious conversation. That's what you should be praying for yourself. Help me to be more wise in how I socialise. Help me to be a better kind of socialite. Like, I understand while we're in lockdown and all that jazz, like all of this feels like the pause button got hit. But for future reference, like really we ought to be the most sociable people. And secondly, our conversations should be really interesting and tasty so that people ask, hold on, what, wait, 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 what is it you people believe? You see, the gifted evangelists, these people in Category 1, they get to share the gospel by kind of making the opportunities and being bold. But the rest of us, we get the opportunities to share the gospel by answering people's inquiries, by responding to people's questions. The assumption here was for Paul that the Christians would be living such interesting, intriguing, unlikely, weird, questionable lives that people would immediately ask you, why do you live this way? In fact, I think Peter assumes the same thing. In 1 Peter 3, 9, he says exactly the same thing. Always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that is in you. The assumption being someone's going to ask you, why do you have so much hope in you? So this leads us to the second category. I really want to drill down on this. It seems as though that as far as Paul is concerned, the early Christians are going to live life of such an extraordinarily different quality to the people around them that they are going to be asked who they are, and that's what they did. I cannot emphasise to you how incredibly different the early church's behaviour and practices were compared to mainstream society. I mean, it was common in those days for a man to have three women at his disposal, to have a wife who would take care of his home and raise his children, a mistress who would be seen in public with him, and then concubines just for sex whenever he needed it. That wasn't immoral. That wasn't terrible. That's just normal. That's just how you treat women. Everybody does it. No big deal. And then these Christians come along, and they are faithful to their spouses. They have no mistresses and no concubines. In fact, they refer to their spouses as their sisters there's this incredible intimacy and equality in the, the marital status of the early Christians. I mean, I can't tell you how, like, totally and utterly weird that was to actually treat your spouse as an equal, to be considered like a brother or a sister to them. In fact, it was so scandalous that some people misunderstood what was going on and actually charged the early Christians with incest. This is one of the most common attacks on the early church. They said, you marry your brothers and sisters to each other. Now, this was just them trying to discredit the Christians, but you can see that it's based on enough truth to think that that charge will stick because 
husbands referred to their wives as, as sisters. It was scandalous. It was unheard of. Slaves at that time routinely stole from their masters. Why wouldn't you? I mean, any chance you could get, right? They routinely looked for opportunities to abscond or to be lazy. That was just standard operating procedure. And yet in this very letter to the Colossians, Paul tells slaves to obey their masters. Now, this is not an endorsement of slavery. This is Paul saying, whatever we have slavery, whatever condition you find yourself in, whether you're married, whether you're a slave, live in a way that is so unlike slaves at that time that people will ask, what the heck, who are you? Why do you live this way? You'll find it again and again and again. Like women who are being... Um, treated so badly by their husbands, of course, slander their husbands and engage in gossip and, and, uh, and, and feel completely overwhelmed by, by the horrors of that situation. And yet the early Christian women affirm their husbands because they're being treated equally, of course. Can you see how this kind of complete rearrangement of the way that, that the whole family unit was constructed was questionable? But not only that, Christians took people into their homes, whether they were other Christians or not. Christians completely dissolved all the social barriers that everybody else lived under all the time. Christians fed those who were hungry. Christians behaved in ways completely and utterly unlikely. And when people went to their meetings, which often happened around big, long tables, with I mean, we had communion today, um, which seemed odd on Zoom and all that kind of jazz, but um, not that I'm putting it down. I mean, churches are doing it everywhere, but it's just not the same, is it? We're meant to sit around big tables and eat together. And what they said was, like, the early Christians, like, what is going on? You've got slaves and free men sitting, like, right next to each other. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, like, it was unheard of. It was completely bizarre and, un and questionable. And so when people would ask, what is this? They, they, like they say you eat flesh and drink blood at your meals. Like what's with that? They say that you treat each other as equals, that you feed those who, who are hungry, that you take people in. And back in the, in, in the early period of the church, if plague uh, like should, should break upon a particular community or, or town and people are dying, the Christians in the next nearby town would actually pray, Lord, who of us should move to the infected village or town and live there and share the gospel there and die there in serving those who are in need? I mean, that level of extraordinary sacrifice and selflessness just characterised the early church. And, of course, people then asked, what's with this? And Paul's assumption was, that when people were intrigued by your lifestyle and asked questions about how you live, that's when, in the context of social interaction through wise conversation that you're having, that's when you get to speak about the kingship of Jesus. Back in the fourth century, um, after, the, after the empire had become Christian under Constantine, one of his successors tried to turn the empire back to paganism. Um, he, he's called um, uh, Julian the Apostate because what he wanted to do was like get back to all the Roman and Greek gods because he wanted to get away from Christianity. And he actually sends out a letter to all these governors all around the empire. And he says, you know why so many people are becoming Christians? I've actually done my research and I know why. They become Christians because they feed the poor, they take uh, people into their homes, 
They tend the graves of people they don't even know. Apparently that was a big deal back in those days. These people are out-loving even the Roman Empire and its uh, systems. And so he says to them, I am sending you big wagons full of oil and grain. I want you to use that, cash that stuff in, uh, turn it into money, and I want you to build feeding programs. I want you to build hospices for the sick, and I want you to start uh, building, uh, building housing projects for the poor. This is the emperor of Rome saying to governors around the empire, I want you to institute a social security system for the poor so that people won't go and join the Christians. I mean, that's extraordinary when you think about it. And when he sent out all these gallons and gallons of oil and wine and grain and what have you, none of it, as far as historians can figure out, was ever used for the purpose that was set. All these governors, I guess, they cashed it all in, they built holiday houses or something, who knows, but it all evaporated and came to naught. Because what Julian didn't realise was that Christians were not feeding, clothing, housing, uh, ministering to people as some cynical um, strategy for recruiting more people to their religion. What they were doing was just the overflow of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can't out-strategize that, folks. The Christians survived that and continued to grow and ultimately conquered the empire. Now, when we think about that in our own contexts today, it makes sense, doesn't it? It's like we're not going to, like, you know, convert Long Jetty by holding great big rallies and having you know, huge events and all that sort of stuff. But what would happen if, like, if scores of us and then hundreds of us and then thousands of us actually lived such questionable lives that people had never seen anything like us before and wanted to know what we lived, why we lived the way we lived and why we had the values we had. And in the context of that, all the ordinary Christians could speak about the way King Jesus has shaped us into a different people. And then when it got to the point where you're like, oh, I'm not really good at explaining it, I've done my best, but, hey, come and meet my friend, my gifted evangelist friend or my pastor. She can explain it better to you. Can you see the combination between these, the gifted evangelist, the everyday believer? Together, this is a really potent way to think about sharing the gospel. Now, here's the problem for us, folks, and I think it's a big problem. And it's a big problem, particularly in middle-class kind of neighbourhoods like yours and the one that I live in. And that is that Christians have been told forever and ever now, it feels like, don't be weird, don't be different, like fit in. Don't let people think, oh, you Christians are crazy and strange. Like look like everybody else. And so what have we got? We've got churches full of Christians who look like all the good upstanding non-Christians in the neighbourhood. Like we have the same housing renovations as they have and we go on the same holidays as they go and we buy the same cars as they do. Like we live the same way they do. Like we don't look any different except we just go to church on Sunday. But that's not what Paul anticipated the, the church would be like. He anticipated that we would be of a particular quality that was so different and intriguing that we were bound to get tongues wagging and people were bound to want to know who the heck are you people and why do you live this way? You were designed to answer questions and you only get to answer questions if you live a questionable life. And churches that are good at this are equipping and encouraging and discipling us 
to live the kind of different, intriguing, surprising lives that are likely to arouse questions. No one cares less if you say on Monday morning at work, I went to church on Sunday. They just think, oh, that seems weird, but okay, I don't, I don't really care. But I tell you what, when you say our church has just raised thousands of dollars to give it away to serve this cause or that cause, or when you say I am not renovating my house, my wife and I decide to pour all that money into blah, 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 or when you say I've taken kids into my home or I'm fostering kids or I, whatever, when you say stuff, that is of such an unlikely nature, of course people are going to say, why? Why do people do that? That's when you get to talk about Jesus. Do you want to follow? I'll give you a kind of a surprising example, for me at least. Uh, years and years ago, I and, and four years now, I've been um, really, really distressed by Australia's uh, policy toward um, refugees and asylum seekers. Um, we did our level best to stop Afghans getting to our country. And if you turn on the news right now, you'll see what's going to happen to all those Afghans that we refuse to allow to come to our country. It's unspeakable. It's un unconscionable. The fact that we would then arrest people when they tried to escape from Sri Lankan civil war or from Afghanistan or Pakistan or places like that and put them on islands off the coast of Australia and imprison them, to me, is just... It's ungodly. I can't imagine why any Christian would not be outraged by this treatment. I mean, it's not a crime to seek asylum, but even if it was, the fact that we are locking up people's children because of their, their parents' decision, to me, is unacceptable. So I've campaigned for years and years and years against this. My local member used to be Tony Abbott, so you can imagine how much leeway I got on trying to argue against this. I've been in his office so many times. I've marched, I've signed petitions, I've put up posters, I've done the works. And then when years ago the Guardian newspaper leaked all those medical reports from Nauru and we found out what unspeakable conditions people were living in, I'm not saying unspeakable insofar as they didn't have a bed and, a, and four walls and meals provided. Sure, all that was there. But unspeakable insofar as they were living in utter wretched hopelessness, no future, no opportunity for, for to escape, no way out. Like we were finding that there was unbelievable levels of post-traumatic stress. We were finding there were sexual assaults occurring uh, um, from, uh, from the, the uh, 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 local uh, uh, people. We were finding out that there was, um, uh, that there was unspeakable depression, uh, suicidal ideation, uh, suicide, suicide attempts. I mean, you, you lock somebody up and you tell them you have no hope of ever getting out. People die from the inside out. And so years ago, when that, that came out, I was so outraged by it. Me and a group of ministers decided that, like Christian ministers, decided that we would go to the, the office of the Prime Minister, who at that point was Malcolm Turnbull. So we went to his uh, electoral office in the eastern suburbs and we walked into the waiting area and the staff there said, oh, sorry, we don't have an appointment with all these ministers. There was Catholics, Anglicans, United Church Pentecostals, me, a Baptist. Uh, they all had their kind of ecclesial garb on, like clerical collars and, uh, and robes and that. I just had my black shirt on. That's as, that's as clerical as it gets for us Baptists. Uh, we walked into the waiting room. Um, 
the staff said, we don't have an appointment with you guys. Why, why are you all here? And we said, no, no, we're just here. We're going to pray through the um, the, the uh, Nauru papers. We're going to pray for those people that are on Nauru right now. Oh, no, they said, no, 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 you can't pray here, but too late. We're on our knees in the waiting area, and we started praying. We prayed through all those, all those reports. All their names are redacted, but I prayed for a little girl, an eight-year-old girl who was so depressed, she was swallowing stones compulsively, hoping that that might kill her. Could you imagine an eight-year-old wanting to die? let alone thinking up such a like some unsophisticated way of killing herself by swallowing stones. We prayed for women who had been sexually assaulted, teenage girls who couldn't get out of bed. We just prayed through these stories. I had tears rolling down my nose. I mean, we were just in prayer. The police arrived. They walked in. They saw a whole bunch of people in prayer, an elderly nun, an old Catholic priest, an Anglican minister, they thought, oh, no, we don't want to drag these people out. This is not going to look good for us. There's press outside already. I mean, this isn't good. So I heard them say to the staff, listen, how long can they pray for anyway? I mean, like, you know, uh, if they're still here at 5 o'clock tonight, which we doubt, like, call us and then we'll come and get them. And that's when I realised if we were going to make any any kind of uh, a show of this, if we're going to get anyone to be aware of how dire this was, we're going to be praying until 5 p.m. Now, folks, I don't know if you've ever prayed all day, but some of those ministers, I'd never met them before. I don't know if you've ever prayed all day with people you've never met before, but it's the most extraordinary and beautiful form of intimacy. We cried, we sang, and we prayed all day for refugees and asylum seekers on Nauru and on Manus Island. And then as the day started to, like, come to a close, close to 5 o'clock, one of the ministers, a Uniting Church minister, she said, listen, I think the police will be here soon, so why don't we, um, why don't we sing Amazing Grace to end our time? And so on our knees, uh, we started to sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. At that very point, I mean, we didn't get halfway through the verse, first verse when the big glass doors in the, in the waiting area burst open and, like, you know, a dozen police officers, like, poured into the room uh, with all the gear on that, that cops wear. They surrounded us uh, in order to arrest us and take us out into the police wagons. But a funny thing happened. As soon as they saw us all singing, as ministers, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. They all stopped and they all kind of like stood back. Surrounding us, they just kind of waited until like we'd finished singing. And as we would finish the first verse, they would all lean in and like prepare to arrest us. And then we would burst into the second verse and they were all like, all kind of stand back again, and then at the end of each verse, they all bristle and like move forward to arrest us, and we'd launch into another verse, and they'd be like, oh, "Okay, a little wait," you know. Um, it was hilarious, and in fact, I don't know about you guys, but I only thought there were four verses to Amazing Grace, but I think the Anglicans or the Catholics have written like a dozen other verses because, like, they just kept on singing this song. And it kept the police at bay as long as we sang it. Now, don't get me wrong, like the police were not stopped by us. It was just out of some kind of strange 
cultural respect for people at worship, they were held at bay just for a little bit longer until finally we ran out of verses and the cops stepped in, took each of our arms and arrested us. But they wanted to do it in order. There was press outside. Uh, they wanted to take us out, like, quickly and get us into these police wagons. And so they kind of lined us all up, and each of us had a policeman at his arm. And the policeman who was holding my arm said to me, he said, you guys been praying all day? I said, yeah, we have. No, no, he said, like, have you been actually, prayers have been coming out of your mouth all day. I guess if you don't pray, it's hard to imagine what that would be like, right? And I said, we have. We have been praying all day. And he said, why? And I said, because I don't know what else I can do. I said, I, I, have, I have protested, I have marched, I've, I've, I've signed petitions, I, I've done everything I can possibly can to let people know how uncomfortable this is. And it's just, it hasn't made any difference. I just think the only thing I can possibly do is to pray. And to pray because I think Jesus called us to live a different way. I think Jesus lived us to, to call us to live a life of hospitality and of welcome and of care for the poor and inclusion of those who are the, the most needy. I believe that Jesus came and suffered and died to kind of break the power of sin that keeps people poor and keeps other people rich and actually brings about a whole new order of living. And I'm just praying that a whole new order of living could somehow like make a difference in this world. And by this stage, he has like walked me out of the vestibule and out onto the street and he's loading me into the back of the wagon. And he says to me, he says, as I, after I've talked about this whole new way of being human that Jesus has called us to live, he said to me, I, I'd like to live like that. And I said to him, well, get in the wagon here with me and join me. And he said, oh, I don't want it that much. So maybe wonder... Maybe there are a lot of Christians who don't want it that much as well. That afternoon or that night, I got home and my neighbour, who lives across the road, I can see his place right now, he's a tiler, he's a little bit older than me, he was waiting for me. He said, I saw you on the news. He said, man, you got arrested with all those priests. He said, that's hilarious. But I mean, he just thought it was absolutely hilarious. His, his neighbour, the minister of religion, was on the news getting arrested. Why was that? He said, what were you doing? I sat in the gutter and I talked to him about it for ages and ages, about this whole new way of being human that Jesus calls us to. He modelled it. He died to break the power of the old way of being human. He sets us free from fear and sin and death and the devil and he invites us into this new order of life under his kingship. Friends, I didn't enter into that protest in order to share the gospel with people. I did it in order to protest what I think is an unjust policy. But I'm telling you, when you live in surprising ways, people want to know, why are you doing this? Why do you live this way? Why do you have these values? Don't believe those who told you you're meant to fit in and look like everyone else. It's actually in the living of a questionable life that Christians are at their best. It's in the living of a questionable life the opportunities to share the hope that we have in Christ become more possible. While ever you look exactly like your neighbour, 
and have the same values and lifestyle as your neighbour, why are they going to ask you anything? Live questionable lives. Socialise in wise kinds of ways. Have tasty and delicious salty conversations with people. And you will, I promise you, have lots of opportunities to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Peace to you, my friends.